I'd like you to open your Bible tonight to 1 Timothy chapter 4. I've been studying this week and looking at some things in the Sermon on the Mount. It's something that needs to be taught again. It's been 10 years ago since we taught on that subject. So we need to teach on it again because there's so much in that that church members ought to be aware of and ought to be challenged with and challenged by. It's sort of a leading up to that and whenever it comes. I want you to look with me at 1 Timothy 4, verse 12 through 16 tonight. Paul is speaking to one of his faithful young ministers here, Timothy, and he is saying some things to him that are so important that one of the greatest verses in the New Testament is verse 16, which we'll get to when it's over, whereas he said at the end of it, if you take heed to yourself and unto the doctrine and you continue in them, he said, you not only will save yourself, but all those that hear you. I cannot think of something, a promise, full of more grace and mercy than that one. And so I want us to begin tonight with verse 12. As he is talking to this young man, giving him some advice, he set him in office. But it will also apply to us because as Paul is addressing Timothy, the instruction that he gives him can also be applied to anybody that has an audience in their life. An audience may mean your family. You may be a father or a mother, and you have an audience. You may be a school teacher. You may be the CEO of some company, or you may be a business owner, and others are around you and watching. You have to talk to a lot of people. We must always remember, all of us, that before we're anything else in this world, we're Christians. But being a Christian is not just a label that goes with church membership and Sunday morning routines and rituals. The word designates a life that is lived according to what God said. And when you live that way, though people don't agree with it and don't really want it, they have to admire the fact that you are so different from most everybody else in that you're willing to give up a lot of what the world won't give up in order to be what God wants you to be. They all know that's right. I mean, even the heathens in the world know that that's right. They'll tell you right away, well, a Christian shouldn't do that. They don't know anything about God, about the world. But they know this, that if you're a Christian, there are things you don't do. There is a way you live. They know that. And so it is for us then to make sure that we align ourselves with God and his word and so that we give no cause to anybody to bring blame against us to live blameless in society, to live blameless in the world, to know that we're being watched at all times. I know when I was a basketball coach and I got saved, it seemed like to me that everybody had a microphone and a camera. I know they didn't, and I'm thinking more highly than I should, but it seemed like you introduced yourself to the community as a heathen, and I did. And then suddenly you've had this moment in a church on a Sunday morning that has redefined your life, you say. It seemed like everybody that maybe tried it and couldn't or not too sure of it, they all watch everything you do, everything you say. When you stand up and testify, as I did in my adult Sunday school class, that if you want to know how a Christian lives, watch me. And I know a lot of folks say, well, that's the most arrogant thing I've ever heard. It shouldn't be arrogant. I mean, we're either Christian or we're not. We either meant what we said when we said, I'll follow Jesus, or we didn't. And if we did, it's okay to be watched. We should be watched. We should watch each other. If we see a brother overtaken in a fall, we should go and restore that brother. Isn't that right? So certainly we watch each other. We do pay attention to each other. We just want to live in such a way that we can encourage each other and to know that this can be done. We can live this life. Now, in talking to this young preacher, Timothy, he was no doubt ministering to a congregation in some way. And these are the words that Paul said to him, beginning in verse 12. And again, we could say this to any of us who have some authority, a CEO, whatever. This is a part of our testimony, too. Verse 12, let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, 
in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given to thee by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things and give yourself totally or wholly to them that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed to yourself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. I love that. But you can't just casually claim that and say, if you come in here once a while, you know, and you hear what I have to say, or you come once a week, maybe that's all there is to it. You know, you got to take heed how you hear too, don't you? Not only what you hear, but how you hear. So put it all together. You realize that he's talking about if somebody is really into this and dedicated and committed wholly or totally to it, it's your life. And this is what you do. And you do it with all your heart. God will honor that. And those who feed on that will be affected by it in such a way that they'll be saved. Now, that is a grand and glorious promise. There's something here for all of us, every one of us. Let's begin in verse 12. There's six things that Paul says here. And again, remember, we should all have a good report of those on the outside. We don't want to fall into the reproach of the devil by saying one thing and doing something else. So here's some things that Paul begins with, six things. I don't want to labor on all of these, but I want to give due where due is deserved. First is the word. In verse 12, let no man despise your youth. It'd be an example, somebody to be imitated who is showing the way you follow this, you're going right. In word. Now, not only in the words you're saying, but how you're saying it. Isn't it true that you can say the right thing the wrong way? Somebody could say to me, say, oh, this is your wife. Yeah. Or somebody look at her and say, this is your wife? <laughs> See, who said the same thing? We said it two different ways, but they mean differently because of the emphasis on the way it's said. But we are to be an example in words. There are words we don't use. There are words that we try to use graciously, even when we're correcting people. Our words telegraph our heart. When I speak, my heart speaks. And the words that come out of me come out of my heart. It's the kind of person I am. It's easy to quote the Bible in answering a question or in a meeting somewhere. It's how you live and the words that you choose to describe situations. And again, I'm a master at this. I've done this so much and it's so wrong, but, you know, expressing yourself. I'll tell you one thing. See, that comes out of our heart. That's the word that we use to describe some militant, combative attitude that we might have on the inside. That's not good. Ministers, teachers, preachers, Christians shouldn't be like that. How we respond with words. Oh, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> Everybody listens to us. Sometimes people come away from a brief engagement with you and say, he ain't no different than anybody else. It's because they heard what you said. They heard the way you said it or the words you use to describe somebody else. Our words are supposed to be full of grace, aren't they? Let your speech be with grace, seasoned with salt, having something there that is pure and clean. Something that all of us have to practice on. All of us do. But we're going to be known by our words, how we talk, how if we yell at people and scream or whether we are in control and thoughtful about what we're saying and speaking that which edifies. But we're to be an example to others in the way we speak. Let no man find an occasion to criticize us because of that. Second thing he mentions is your conversation, which means your conduct, how you act. Your conduct is how you present yourself in society or around us. Whether you're moody and angry or flippant or sincere and honest and concerned and caring, or whether you go out to 
ball games and holler, kill the umpire. I mean, everything about us, our behavior is a message to other people that this is the way Jesus is teaching me to act. And if you mess up, of course, there's a time for repentance and thank God for that. He mentions charity, thirdly. Charity means love. One thing that should typify all of us, and one of those things we have to work on a lot, is compassion and caring about other people. Love is not always a sweet word spoken. When the Bible said, speak the truth in love, it means you say the truth as it's in your heart as best you know it, knowing that it might hurt somebody's feelings, but maybe that's necessary for somebody to recover. So you want to speak the truth in love. Like seeing a brother overtaken in a fall. You who are spiritual, you have to care about somebody to want to go help somebody. You really have to be concerned in a spiritual way to really want to see people corrected without really getting in their face about it. Love is a driving force that brings to the table, brings to a meeting, brings to an engagement, a fellowship, that which exemplifies God. Loving and caring speaking the truth in love. You know, sometimes even in a debate, how many of you know the Bible still talks about contend earnestly for the faith? Amen. See, I love the word, and you're not getting it right, so sometimes there's this earnestness about it. You see, I'm not mad. A brother and I used to debate every Sunday afternoon. I'd stay up all night Saturday night preparing for my Sunday school lesson. This is the very earliest time in my life and doing what I'm doing. I gave in my heart, and so I loved it. Never done it before, but this was great. But when church was over and I came home, it was crash time. And here came this Baptist boy. He came way too many Sundays after church. He came in. He wanted to talk about once saved, always saved, or something. And I couldn't let that go. I couldn't just listen to that and say, some other day, some other day. I had, no, no, no. And we sat down and... And we'd go to it. And we would raise our voices. But I don't think in those days I was ever mad. I don't think he was ever mad. It's just a passion for being right. But you can take that to the extreme too. But when you love the Lord, when you love his word, and when you love what's right and what's clean and what's pure, when you love what's brought you this far, when you look back in your life and see how God, as you honored his word, brought you all of these things, you know this, that God has loved you. And as you've kept his word, it's a way that he says you love him. And Paul is telling this young preacher, you've got to be an example to others in love. People have to know. You're going to be around people. You can't avoid this. And they're going to have to know that you care. That you don't court men's favor. You don't just agree with everybody so everybody will like you. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about you being honest, upfront, caring, and having compassion for people. You're willing to go the second mile because you care. You really do care. And love is a wonderful thing because one of the things that love does, it'll keep you from gossip. It'll keep you from backbiting. It'll keep you from getting angry and upset with somebody because love is one of those things that covers a multitude of sins. And love will carry over from this life into the next life because the next life is God, and God is love. Faith and hope is for this life, but love is forever. It's the greatest of the three. And so you want a large measure of that. Notice the fourth thing that he speaks of is spirit. You should be an example to the believers in spirit. What would that mean? In talking in tongues? No. Put your finger right there, and I want you to turn to two passages of Scripture. They're both in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 6 and Proverbs chapter 17. Would you look, first of all, at Daniel chapter 6 and verse 3. Now, this is what was said of Daniel and why he was promoted in life, why he was advanced over others in his life. It says, Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes because... He was smarter than them. It doesn't say that, does it? He said that Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes because 
Daniel had an excellent spirit in him. Had an excellent spirit in him. He's talking about his disposition, how he was perceived. Have you ever said this about somebody or have you ever heard somebody described as having a good spirit? Yeah, but he has a good spirit. I'll say one thing about him. Somebody once said he has a good spirit. What's he talking about? He's talking about his disposition, the way he handles and conducts and the whole package. It's like what you are in spirit. Look at Proverbs 17, Proverbs 17 and verse 27 about he that hath knowledge. If you have knowledge, if you're learning things, you're accumulating knowledge, you're beginning to have your eyes open, you're seeing things. Here's what it says about a person who is learning or who is growing. He that hath knowledge spareth his words. And a man of understanding is of an excellent spirit. Now, is that describing you? Man, don't shout me down. I'm trying to keep my concentration going here. He said, a man that hath knowledge spareth his words. And he says that a man of understanding is of an excellent spirit. In other words, you may be the kind of person you are when you first begin with God. But as God begins to affect your life with knowledge and you begin to see what God is saying, the eyes of your heart begin to embrace what God is saying. You see things differently than you ever have. You never saw it that way before. You were never a Christian. God is showing you things in a way that is spiritual. And when you begin to see things that way, your whole life begins to change. You have a new reason for doing things you do. You have a reason for not doing things you used to do. There's a new motivation in your life. And the things you once said or wanted to say, you begin to refrain and hold that back because it wouldn't do anybody any good. It would help nothing. And so a man of understanding, the Bible says, who does these kind of things and is growing like this, has an excellent spirit. Probably the kind of man that God is going to loose upon his people one day to lead them because he's learning how to do it. Go back to 1 Timothy 4 and verse 12 because of Fifth thing he says is faith. Be an example in faith. Not only faith with regard to relating to God. Faith is a word often used to describe how we relate to God. We are faithful. And I think that's probably what he's speaking of the most here. Be an example of a man who is faithful. A man who trusts the Lord. A man who has learned to count on God. He didn't used to, but because God has trained him and taught him and he's responded, he has learned that God will take care of his needs. Nothing is too hard for him and so forth. So here's a man who begins to be faithful to God. If a man is unwilling to be faithful, he is not fit for the pulpit. And if you can't be faithful in some small things, it's hard for you to be taken serious by others who know that you don't. I'll never overemphasize, even though people say I do, I'll never overemphasize faith. It's just that one subject in the Bible that pops up all the time that has divine import to it. Without faith, you cannot please God. So he said, you got to be an example to the believers in one who trusts God, plus one who is faithful in doing the things that God wants you to do. Your faith like light should shine before others. And one of the things that people should be able to say about you that they can say about God is that he's faithful. He is reliable. His heart and soul's in this thing. But they should say that about all of us. All of us. And the last thing he mentioned, number six in verse 12, is purity. Purity would, for me, refer to a moral and clean life, not given to sinful struggles and lust and difficulties physically and you overcome all of those things. You put those things behind you, and you never want anything in your life to be a stumbling block to somebody else. So, I mean, you take it all seriously. This is a life. God's going to hold me to this. And if you're going to be a teacher like he is, you're going to be judged more than others. Didn't Jesus talk about the grave consequences of making somebody stumble? 
like a millstone thrown around his neck and thrown into the sea. That, that's how God feels about, oh boy, I don't want to get this out of context. And I don't believe it is. But all of us who are supposedly representing God to this world and maybe as a minister or something, when we make people stumble because of our own weaknesses and things and they quit and give up on the Lord, we have a grave consequence to that. I mean, anybody can recover and anybody can repent and be restored, yes. But Jesus said, well, if you make one of these little ones stumble, it'd be better for you that a millstone was hung about your neck. And he said, don't desire to be a teacher. Because, you know, if you teach something wrong and you mislead people and they turn away from the Lord, the consequences that are equally grave. But he's talking about morals here. I think purity of life. If your life tells other people that it's okay to indulge in that and watch that kind of stuff, because after all, you're a preacher and act that way, and you, and you misrepresent God and his life, and you cause people to backslide or give up, a lot of trouble. There's a lot of consequences to all of that. So Paul begins the first six, in verse 12, those six things, Paul begins with that. And then he goes in verse 13, and he says, until I come, there are three specific things, and this is what I want to major on tonight. There are three specific things that I want you to do. Not only this young man who is a preacher, but this same thing applies to all of us. This is not some isolated case that has no application for us in a, as members of his body, but especially for those who lead, but it applies to all of us. This does. First thing he said was, until I come, give attention to reading. Now, reading, whether it is meant here by reading in the church, probably not everybody could read in those days. Not everybody had a we would call it a Bible. There was no such thing then. There was no such thing as a New Testament book then. There wasn't anything like that. All they had were the Old Testament scrolls. Remember Jesus, when he went into the temple in his first sermon, he read. They handed him the scroll, and he found the place, and he read. And then he made his comments about it. So it could be in this sense that reading to people often was important because that's about the only chance they would ever have of hearing the content of Scripture, to have it read to them. Now, we can take it a step further today, rightfully so, and still have it making right application here by saying that we read because it's personally good for us. When you realize that this word, as it's finally been handed down to us, that this book is the word of God. This is not what Paul thought. It's not what Peter thought or Matthew or Luke or John thought. But God used these men to write down what he said, what God said. People could say, well, I think Paul didn't like women. Paul wrote as the Spirit of God gave him. And I believe that the inspiration of scriptures is one of those things we must believe. It falls under the heading of doctrine. And a lot of people, it doesn't matter. For some people, it means that God said, okay, Paul, here's what I want you to say. I want you to tell people this and then lift it up to Paul, how he would write that down. And in that sense, the scripture contains the word of God, but it's not verbatim the word of God. I couldn't follow it if that's the way it was. Because if there's a mixture of God and man, I wouldn't know how to decipher what is God and what is man. So I have to believe this, that God breathed every word. All scripture is God breathed, given by the inspiration of God. Holy men of old wrote as they were given to write or inspired. Sometimes they wrote things and they said. They didn't know the meaning of what they wrote, which means that God ordered every word by the hand of an Isaiah, a Jeremiah, a Luke, a John, Peter, or Paul. They wrote down these things as they were divinely given by the Holy Spirit. And they look at it some after it's over and say, I'm not sure about that. But they left it be because they knew this was a moment from God to write. And so therefore, I believe that all scripture is divinely inspired. That it's not only divinely inspired, but it was divinely recopied as the emperors and the rulers of the world tried to destroy it. 
that they hid it in caves and jars and men who were dedicated to learn the languages, men who gave their lives to learn things. And God used those men to write down with a passion, a passionate, honest heart, the very words of God. And I believe it's been preserved and handed down to you tonight in its purest form, that it is the word of God. I don't question, well, and how many words you think are out of place or how many mistakes you think are in there. There aren't any. Now, how do you know that? How do you know there is? I choose to believe that this is exactly what God said. Now, therefore, back to my point. Therefore, reading the word is to read what God divinely inspired. And as you read it, and if you make a practice of reading the Bible, it becomes a personal word. You begin to read it, and you begin to think. I have a devotional Bible on our table, our dinner table at home, and many times, if not something else going on, I'll open to where the marker is and begin reading. Right now, I'm so far behind, and you know, every day, I'm still back in March, but I'm reading about the Exodus now. I can't read it fast because I try to savor every word. And as I read it, I guess 40 years of doing this and all of these years and accumulating of this and having said this, it seemed like every word is kind of another door that opens up to a lot of thinking. And it's good for us to think, but reading inspires it. Reading inspires you to think, what does this mean? How can I make application of this? You know, that's interesting because we just heard the other day that God said something. Where was that? Well, I didn't take notes. Shame on you. So you try to go back and find this or that. One day when it really gets to rolling, you think, I really like to know what that means. So you begin to read and you read and it becomes like God speaking to you. You don't have to hear a voice. You have a voice in your mind. Every time you pronounce a word, your mind, you can hear it. Not audibly, but it's there. When I say home, you know, it's home. I have a picture of a home. I know what a home is. I have understanding. And the more your mind expands spiritually, the more reading becomes a pleasure. I'm not much for reading just novels and stuff like that. I enjoy a really good book if it's interesting and exciting. But just to read a lot of what people write, I don't have much interest in that. But I do like to read the Bible. Because there's so much to be gained by it. And there's so much to be done by it. Put your finger in 1 Timothy 4 and turn to Deuteronomy 17. In Deuteronomy 17, it was law that when a king came to the throne, verse 17, when a king came to the throne in Israel, this was what God required. I don't know if, how many ever did it. I don't know if any of them did it. But this was the law for kings. Verse 17, it says that the king shall write him a copy of this law. I think it says in the presence of the priest. Does it say that? Or something about the priest will be there. They'll provide him a scroll and he'll write it down and copy his own copy. How long would it take you to write the law? You think about it. All the things the king has to do, one of the things that God required him to do, maybe the priests were watching him so he couldn't hire one of his little underlings to do it. This wasn't a hired thing. You had to do this yourself. This was personal because this is how we relate to God. So he had to write down a copy of the law. And some of those young fellows, like little Josiah was only eight years old when he came to the throne. It might have taken him a while. I don't know if he did, but if he did in... The beginning, God made heaven. Now, there's five books. How long would it take? God wasn't concerned about time. God just said, do it. Now, here's the reason for it. Here's the effect, the intended effect, writing and reading the word of God is supposed to have on all of us. Verse 19, and it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life. And here's why, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them. Let me ask you a question. 
because you're thinking about this now, was the way of God for a king to be an example to others. Now, what would affect his example? He begins with one thing, the word of God, the law. You write it down. Write your own copy. This is the king's copy. I want this word to be with you all the days of your life. Wherever you go, take this. Whatever you do, make sure you take this with you. And every day you shall read it. And this is what will happen if you do that. You will learn to fear the Lord. You will learn to put God in his rightful place in a human being's life as Lord, as Savior, as King. You will learn what it means to bow to his sovereignty and to make him who you look to and who you count on. That's the kind of effect that God will have upon you as the light of this word begins to shine into your heart. You may learn to fear the Lord as God and keep all the words of this book and all of his statutes all the days of your life. Does that mean that God will bless him for doing that? Obviously will. And if God blesses the king, who else is going to be blessed? Turn to Joshua. Keep your finger in 1 Timothy 4. Turn to Joshua. The next book over. Chapter 1, verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. For then... Then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. The question I want to ask you is, does God want you to prosper and have good success? Prosper means to do well, to achieve good results. Certainly it would involve some of the luxuries of life, if not a lot of them. Solomon had them all. And while those things are included, they're not near as important as having a good attitude, a good outlook, and faith in God that he's going to take care of everything. To prosper that way. To have good success. Not wonder all the time why things aren't working for you. Why this doesn't work for me. To not be like that. If that's going on in our lives and we're wondering and clamoring within ourselves, I don't remember, then maybe we need to go back to Joshua 1 and verse 8 or Deuteronomy 17, verse 17 or Psalms 1. Maybe we need to go back. Are we reading the word? Okay, having read it, do you meditate on it? Do you ponder it? Do you think about it? Do you ask yourself what this means? Do you ask yourself, is this something that God is speaking to me about? Your mind is on the Lord. And he said, if you'll do that, if you'll meditate on the word, he said, then you'll have good success. And then you'll prosper. And you know who will notice it as far as an example? Your family. Your family. Your kids will grow up and say, well, I'll tell you one thing. You can say what you want to about mom or dad, but I'll tell you one thing. God bless them. They watched it. And if that's the only audience you ever had, it's a worthy audience. If you lead the way and you show them how this works and they follow you and it works for them, it'll work for their children too. Didn't he say about teaching his word to your children? Talk of them by the way as you sit, as you rise, and as you walk, speaking to your children of all of these things, that it may be well with them forever, forever. You better be sure and know that God does put a wonderful premium on his book. And it's not to sit around and decorate a table giving evidence to visitors that you're a religious person. But it sits there as a word of life. It sits there as a stick of dynamite. The power of this word can change any life, including yours, any circumstance. And seeing those circumstances respond to this word is prospering. It is good success. Look in Psalms 1 and verse 2. You probably know it by heart. Blessed is a man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the sea of the scornful. But it says in verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he doth meditate. He does it all the time. The reason he meditates on the word is because he has read things in the word and he's given something to think about because the meditation has to do with pondering, thinking. 
you don't think about things you don't know, but when God says things to you and it follows you through the day, you find yourself thinking about it. Even if you're not being constructive with what you're going to do with it, you're thinking about it. It's an answer to something in your life. And the Bible describes this man as he shall be like. Remember that? Was it verse 3? He shall be like. He shall be like a tree planted by the water, by the river. And he prospers. His leaf is always green. His fruit is always there in season. And whatsoever he doeth, what does he say at the end of verse 3? Whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Not because he's a theologian. Not because he's some heady somebody in the church that everybody wants to answer questions. He just simply prizes the word. He reads the word. He thinks about the word. God engages with him in this activity of thinking, and he begins to see things he's never seen. The eyes of his heart are opened up. I don't know how many Christians in churches ever do such things. I don't know that they've ever been challenged to do this. Maybe a lot more than I realize. I don't know. Go back to 1 Timothy 4, because the second thing he says was reading, and then the next thing was exhortation. The word means to implore, to beseech, to instruct. The purpose behind exhortation is to strengthen and encourage believers. There is a gift in the church called the gift of exhortation or exhorting. Now, the word exhort or exhorter, exhortation here, how many of you are familiar with Strong's Concordance and the numbering system in Strong's Concordance? Strong's Concordance has, for every Hebrew and every Greek word, there is a number. The Old Testament, every Hebrew word used in the Old Testament has a number. Every Greek word has a number. When you see that number somewhere, you go back to the dictionary in the back there, and you've come down the number, and there's what that Hebrew or Greek word means. That's the definition. It's a dictionary. Strong's Concordance has a dictionary for all these words in it. It just happens that the word exhorter here is number 3874. It's paraclesist or paraclesist. And the word comforter used to describe the Holy Spirit in John 15 and 16. Remember that? But when he, the comforter, comes, it's the next number, 3875. And the word comforter here is a word which means one who is called alongside to help, which is what exhortation does. It's to exhort you to continue in the faith. Remember Paul did that? He gave an exhortation to the people to don't give up. It's like a pep talk. I would like to think at some point in every minister's life, regularly there would be an exhortation. You might call it preaching, you might call it teaching, but sometimes, and I can't make a big distinction here, but sometimes it's an exhortation. It's a call to be encouraged. Sometimes you reprove, sometimes you rebuke, and he said with all long suffering, sometimes you exhort. But all of these things are necessary for the church not only to be informed, but to be convicted and corrected when misinformed. And this is one of the functions of us in the church. It's the function of a parent to his family, to a father, to his sons, to a teacher in a class. When you see things that are out of order, things that shouldn't be, you should address it and deal with it so it can be fixed. That word comes often as an exhortation. And so he told Timothy, he said, until I come, I want you to do this. I want you to read, continue reading, keep that goodness going. I want you to continue in reading and exhortation. And the third thing he mentioned back in verse 13 again is doctrine. Now, doctrine is a word that a lot of Christians kind of tense at. It's kind of like saying tongues in a Baptist church. It's a word that creates a little bit of uh oh because we think of doctrine as some deep theological stuff that's hard to pronounce. 
big old heady words, propitiation, stuff like that, hard to understand, and, and we don't always pay attention, therefore we could hear teaching on it 15 times in our life and never remember it. Because it's just not a thing that we feel is good chemistry with my mind. So we hear it and we take a note. We'll write it down if we can spell it. But it goes away. It's just doctrine. You know, it's some of that theological stuff. Or we talk about the substitutionary atonement. That's too many letters and too big words. You know, I'm not really into that stuff. People say that. Because that's how they often perceive doctrine. But... The word doctrine here is not only referring to the doing it, that is a giving doctrine, but also refers to the information imparted. Doctrine is a word which means teaching, instruction. For example, if I were teaching you tonight on the inspiration of Scripture, we would go in as much as we could in detail about how you can know that Scripture is inspired and how Scripture is preserved, that God is big enough to do all of this, and he obviously has done it through the ages because, 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 because. It's not designed to put anybody to sleep. The purpose of that kind of doctrine is to make us appreciate more and more what we have, and more and more what it's cost good men through the ages to be used of God to do a simple thing like writing down Scripture. That's all they did, and they were killed because they did. Just appreciate all that God has done. You know, in the Reformation period, in the 1500s or the 16th century, during that period of time, doctrine loomed to the surface. It had been anyway for several years from the beginning of the church on because there was so much error being propagated, and there was so much of a desire to get it right that they had a lot of councils through the years and meetings to deal with errors. Well, they really did in the Reformation period. They knew that the Catholic Church, this doctrine was corrupt. Its leaders were corrupt. They were trying to build something in Rome, and they were selling penance. You know, if you give enough money, you can be forgiven. And when Martin Luther saw such as that, he grieved over it. He came back and said, this isn't right. You can't buy forgiveness. There's no carnal thing that can get you forgiveness. So he began to deal with that. It cost him a lot, but it spread like wildfire. Men like John Calvin, Martin Luther, and others, other men of renown, some were great in the eyes of God we never heard of because they were dedicated. They began to bring forth the word in his purity. The Bible was being printed the first time that men could have a copy of the Bible, their own copy, to read and to learn for themselves. And doctrine became a real issue. The Calvinists versus the Arminians during that age, the Calvinists believe in the sovereignty of God. The Arminians believe in the sovereignty of a man's will, that even though man was lost, uh, he wasn't so lost that he couldn't respond to God. And the Calvinists said he cannot respond to anything unless God gives that to him. It's all grace. Still rages on and on today, theology. But it is so important because if you folks, if we, if we don't know what we believe, we won't treasure it. If everything we believe is just a gray thing, yeah, well, I don't know. Like, why doctrine? Why is this so important? It's important so that the way of God can be made clear to us. There's not two ways of God. There is one way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And I want to know specifically, you say, well, you're a legalist. I am. Then call me that. I'll accept that. I want to know what I believe. I want to know why I believe it. I want to see it for myself. You can tell me what you believe or what somebody else believed all you want to. I've got to see it for myself. But once I see it, you won't talk me out of it, and neither will they. Because it becomes lodged in my heart as the way of God. Not a lot of Christians are, to me, theological enough in their understanding of basic fundamental doctrines of the faith. It didn't. John write in the little 3 John 2, he said, if any man come to you and bring not the doctrines of Christ, don't receive him. Don't even let him in your house. That doesn't mean they come to somebody, stranger come to us, all right, let's, 
Or you come in, let me, let me hear what you believe. Was Jesus born of a virgin? If you don't believe that, then you don't believe in the doctrines of Christ. But how could this be? Well, find out. You can't explain it naturally, I promise you that. You have to take it by faith because God said, a virgin shall bear a child and his name shall be called Jesus or Emmanuel, which is God with us. How can God make himself? And see, so you get questions like, and you think, well, how, how would God remake himself? Well, he didn't remake himself. He made a body for himself, a body like yours. It has a mind. It has feelings. It can be weary. It can be hungry. It needs to bathe. God simply made a body, a human body, and in that body, he represented himself, manifested himself to the world. So that in Hebrews 1, it says that Jesus Christ is the visible representation of the invisible God. To see Jesus is what God has projected in a man that God wants us all to be like. That's it. When you see Jesus, you've seen God. Sirs, show us Jesus. Jesus said, have I been so long with you that you don't know who I am? I am he. Can you imagine a human being walking around and that being God? It was hard then. It was hard back in those days. It wasn't always easy for his disciples. But they were around him enough that they said, look, this is God. No man can do what you're doing except God does this. And when he spoke a word, we get to in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus spoke those three chapters, the longest discourse in the New Testament, three chapters, one speech. And when they got to the end of it, they were astonished. The people who heard him, everybody was astonished. For no man had ever spoke like this. See, that's the way God represented himself in Jesus. Wisdom so beyond mortal man that they couldn't trick him. They could not do him. They couldn't catch him in a fault. His wisdom was far superior to all of them because God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Now, this is what a study of that kind of thing does to you. It makes you appreciate and prize highly what your father has done. It becomes a grip in your life. You can't let go of it. It also keeps you from error. When you hear somebody say something that isn't right, it's not time to jump up and go correct somebody. But you say, wait a minute, that's not exactly right. You know how you know it's not exactly right? Because you've been taught or you've studied. Or you're one of those people who get up in the morning and you got a bunch of theology tapes and you start with number one. Every morning I will spend one hour listening to this. And this evening, I'll take a half hour to digress, to think about it, and maybe take some notes. Tomorrow, I'll do another tape. I really want to know what this is all about. I don't want to walk around as some kind of a theologian that can't touch anybody. Get away, get away, get away. I just want to walk around knowing in whom I have believed and being convinced that he's able to do whatever he said he could do. I've learned more than just how to go out and win souls for Christ. Now, I don't mean to belittle that. But if all a church ever preaches is how to go out and win souls for Christ, how to win souls for Christ, it goes back to where we started this thing tonight. Everybody you win to Christ is an audience that you have. In such a situation that you're mentoring some of these people, what are you going to teach them? If you're not learning yourself, what do you teach? If you're not growing yourself, how can they grow? In fact, being around you is going to slow them down. In Ephesians 4, let me tell you a good reasons why we teach. Turn to Ephesians 4, look at verse 14, a verse you've heard a thousand times. Ephesians 4 and verse 14, here's why we teach doctrine, that we be henceforth no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with what? Every wind of doctrine. Why do we teach doctrine? Why do we promote knowledge? So that the people will not be overthrown with error. Amen? Let me read it again. 
verse 14, that we be henceforth no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of, of doctrine. That shouldn't happen to us. And it won't if we're properly taught, properly instructed, and it's pounded into us. Teach my people, feed my sheep. Now, concerning doctrine, while you're back there looking, Titus chapter 1. Titus 1 and verse 9. For here he speaks to Titus. Verse 4, he speaks to Titus and he gives him this instruction. Verse 9, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. There are many out there that are wrong and have gone the wrong way. They're misrepresenting the gospel and Jesus Christ and Christianity. You may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. If we can't do that, who will? If we don't do this, who will? How many times, I wonder, you could say it in your life, I could say it in my life. With How many times have I encountered people I really didn't agree with? And it wasn't like that particular time of talking was the right time to get in their face about it. But you know, you can't let this conversation go a whole lot further without letting them know that's, that what you're doing is wrong. Now, here's a reason that it's wrong. Now, most people take that personal. Well, you don't like me. Who you no, it ain't got nothing to do with you. It has to do with what you said. It has to do with decisions and directions you're taking and the way you're going. It's not right because the Scripture says. I've told you before about years ago at that youth meeting we had, and I was talking about lodges, about Christians belonging to secret lodges and taking oaths. I mean, taking some oaths to do things that a Christian shouldn't be around stuff like that. And so I simply taught that. I don't want these kids to grow up and think it's hard to do that because others do. I want, no, you, you shouldn't do that. Well, then I got this visit by one of them's dad the next day who was in a lodge at a pretty high degree. He didn't think that was right for me to talk to them like that in light of the fact that he was himself in a lodge. And I think in the course of talking, I said, well, whether you think it's right or not is between you and your conscience, but the Bible says it's wrong. And I'm not going to accommodate you because I like you, and I did, and I do. And just keep my mouth shut because I don't want to hurt your feelings because if you're wrong spiritually, then you're wrong, period. And then he would ask another question. I'd say, well, now, the Bible says, and after, I think, two or three of those answers, he said, can you do anything else besides say the Bible says? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I could say, how you doing? Well, what's happening? But when we're talking about something that has eternal consequences, every wind of doctrine, tossing to and fro, you're talking about your kids are going to be hammered by the devil because they've been kept blind, because they don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. You know, you're talking to the wrong man. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. But speak thou the things which become what? Sound doctrine. You have to learn what it is and then speak that. Know what you believe. Go backwards to 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure what? Now, we've said this before, but let me say it again. Does sound doctrine, sound, stable, sure, God-honoring doctrine, is it always convenient to have that? No. But it is absolutely necessary that once you see it, that you receive it. Or at least wrestle with it. Because there's no two ways about it. There's no Hamilton's way and, and the Lord. There's no such thing. There's only one way, isn't there? And it's important. That's why we're here. To find out what we believe and make sure that we settle the fact that there's not two ways of looking at this. Our eye must be single. We see it one way. That's God's way. Now, the world out there, the liberal world would say, well, you're pretty narrow. I'm sure that I am. One of my problems is I'm not narrow enough to myself. I don't want to give myself any room to sin. 
I don't want you to have room to sin. I don't want any of us to think it's all right when we're not exact. And it's, okay. it's not okay. I believe these are the last days. I really do. Think of the notable scriptures. Remember Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles? And his life begins in chapter 16 through chapter 21. And Jehoshaphat was a good man. And the Bible said he followed the first ways of his father David. And God blessed him. Then it says in chapter 17 that Jehoshaphat then sent unto all Judah teachers of the law, men who were learned and understanding, and he sent these teachers into all of Israel to teach them what the law said. You know why he sent them out to teach? One, they didn't know anything. They couldn't read. They didn't have a copy. They couldn't learn by themselves. They had to be taught, how can one teach them unless one be sent? So they were sent. And secondly, as we've already seen, the more this word comes into your life and you begin to make application of it, the more God is willing to bless you and honor your life. So let's get everybody blessed. How about this assembly right here? How about getting this whole crowd right here blessed real good? Now you can't by just, I speak a blessing, and you all fall down. It works because you're inspired to find out for yourself, to be a personal relator to God, to read his word, to adjust yourself to it, as we've already said, and so forth. And they begin to experience moments when God elevates you and does things and stirs you up and then brings blessings and, and success and good things into your life. Praise God. Begin to do all of that. But listen at these words in Jehoshaphat's story in, in chapter 17 of Second Chronicles. It says, verse 9, And they taught in Judah and had the book of the law of the Lord with them and went about through all the cities of Judah and taught the people. Nowhere else, nowhere else in Scripture do you find that, in a kingdom under any king. Nowhere else. And yet the greatest military victory in the Bible was accomplished by Jehoshaphat. By walking out to meet three combined armies. I don't know how many soldiers, a bunch. They walked out without military weapons. They walked out there and worshiped God. And God caused all those people to kill each other. Because he loved them. They all killed each other. All because they were not willing to fight. They were willing to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. How could they have the faith to do that? Would you have gone out there, seeing them coming? Would you have gone out there with a smile on your face, hallelujah, knowing that if they get really, really, really a little bit closer, they're going to kill you? He's, God will take care of us. Praise the Lord. Boom, he made them all kill each other. Could you have done that? They did. Old Testament people without a Bible, without a church meeting. They did it. You know how they did it? They were taught. They had gained something from the Lord. What did Jesus do in Mark chapter 6? In Mark chapter 6, the Bible said in verse 5, He could there do no mighty work except lay his hands on a few sick folk, and he marveled at their unbelief. Jesus said this. He said, A prophet is without honor in his own hometown. He said, And he could there do no mighty work. He couldn't just work miracles. And the reason he couldn't just work miracles like people think he could anytime he wanted to was because of their unbelief. Their unbelief prevented the power of God from coming to them. It does today. Nothing's changed. And when Jesus saw that, he didn't say, well, you poor souls, you could have had it. Mark chapter 6 and verse 6 says, And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went around about the villages teaching. That's how you correct unbelief. You teach the people. You teach people. Matthew 9 says, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogue and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. 
Teaching and healing, teaching and healing, teaching and healing. Teaching promotes faith. Faith promotes expectancy. It's easy to preach when people are expecting. And God heals them. Go back to 1 Timothy 4. We're just about done. He said, Timothy, meditate on these things. Verse 15, meditate on these things. Give yourself wholly or fully completely to this. This is your life. This is not a job. You're not hired to do this, Timothy. We're not hired to be in this room tonight. Who paid us to come here tonight? You didn't pay me to come here. I certainly didn't pay you to come here. Why are we here then? Because we believe the Lord wants us here. Some people don't want to come. That's their business, but you're here. So you're worth teaching. Not that they're not. It's just that you can't teach people who aren't here. There may have been something said tonight that people who need to be here to hear this may never hear it again. It might be like that. I think when Bible talks about redeeming the time and taking advantage of opportunities, I think he meant that. I don't care what condition, how tired you are, and how you got up early this morning, you've been working all day today. I see those eyes. I see those hands. I see those eyes. I'm aware of that standing up here. There's some of you, you know, you're a little tired. I can tell, but I can tell that you're listening. And I know that God, in spite of all of that, will reward you for it. Now, in closing, verse 16. Verse 16, he said, take heed unto yourself. Shelbyville Christian Assembly, mothers, fathers, young folks, singles, married. Take heed to yourself. That means pay attention. Be watchful. Don't let yourself do things you shouldn't do. Nobody can stop you from doing it. If you young people want to flirt and act silly, nobody's going to stop you from doing that. But that's wrong. He said, take heed unto yourself and what else? The teaching. It goes back to that again, to what makes us stand the way we stand. Take heed to yourself and the very thing that you're devoting your life to living by. That's doctrine. I think one of the reasons that I personally admired somebody like Hobart Freeman in my life is because as a theologian, he taught it. And he taught it on my level. That's way down there. But it was such a wonderful thing that the little bits you begin to get promoted you to look into the word to find out more for yourself. And then when you heard it again, it was there. You, yes, praise God. It just made you stable and steadfast. I don't think everybody that heard theology got that, but a lot of people did. But doctrine, take heed to yourself and of the doctrine that thy profiting may appear unto all. Profiting is another way of saying progress. Let me ask you something. Is it important for us to progress? If I'm no different tonight in what I believe and how I live and my mind and make up my heart, if I'm no different now than I was 25 years ago, I have not progressed. Paul said to Timothy, Take heed to yourself. Pay attention to who you are and who you represent. Just like a proper child grows up in a good family, when they go out into the community, they don't allow themselves to do things that would shame their parents. Now, a lot of them did. A lot of them have. But I'm talking about there are some kids that say, I don't want to bring my mother and father through the social trash can by getting out here and acting stupid. They just have this thing about who they are and that hinders or inhibits them from going too far with things or with a crowd they shouldn't be around. Well, how much more, Jesus? We represent Jesus Christ and his kingdom. We've been brought out of the miry clay by him. We have been brought together to hear his word at his invitation. This night will never come again. This night takes its place into history with a million other nights. If there's been that many, I doubt if there's been a million other nights. Unless you're Nat Geo. Nat Geo talks about billions of years old, but this day goes. We're about done with it. It takes its place in history. We were here. 
we had an opportunity tonight. We had a chance. We might have had to fight feelings and weariness, but we were here. We had a chance. We had a chance. We've gotten something that we're going to take home with us tonight. It's going to be there in the morning. Or we let these things slip if we drift on by. Everybody did something with it tonight, everybody. But this is the promise. Let's do it one more time. For in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Does that mean if I will do this in my own life, that this is a good way for me to know that I'm going to be saved? I mean, I know I am because I believe in Jesus. But in doing all of this, it's what saved people do. It's what saved people do, how saved people act. And if we can teach you and all this happens, it goes from me and it goes to you and the Spirit of God makes it work in your life, you'll be saved too. Not because we just drifted into some little church meeting that we feel good in, but because we were somewhere that our hearts were attentive and our minds were brought to attention and God spoke to us and we responded. And one day the reward for all this will be, well done, well done. You paid a price. Enter into the joys that have been prepared for you from the foundation of the world because he said you'll save yourself. Save is a word which covers a lot of territory. Let me read this in close. Salvation. It's to rescue from death, deliverance from disease or demon possession, the rescue of physical life from some impending peril or instant death, or it means spiritual salvation. Essentially, sozo, the word sozo or save, has to do with the preservation of your life. You will not only save yourself, but those that hear you. I'm glad I'm here. Hallelujah. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, continue to visit with us, O God. Continue to be long-suffering with us. Continue to hold us fast, O Lord, in spite of our often weariness and weaknesses. Open our eyes, Lord, in such a way that we really get taken by all of this and our life really does change. My prayer, Lord, is for the salvation of this entire assembly, that nobody in here be lost, but that everybody be saved. Pray for those that are listening tonight by the means of the electronic, that you would bless them too, Lord. We thank you for meeting with us tonight and giving us this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.